Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. The Apostle Paul wrote the Greek the church in Galatia. Let me just reach out this morning by saying, what's good, y'all? Y'all doing all right? <laughs> This morning, I want to be quick to express my my gratitude for the privilege of being here. Uh, if you know any of my story uh, and uh, how this process began, uh, you know Redeemer is an essential part of that. Uh, the very first PCA church uh, that I ever stepped in the doors of was right here at Redeemer. Georgia was the first PCA pastor that I ever met, uh, and so in many ways that dream of bringing RUFs to Winston-Salem State uh, started right here as a part of Redeemer, so I'm grateful for that. But um, RUF at Winston-Salem State, we're in our our second semester, uh, and day after day I am um, amazed at uh, just how God is at work. Uh, Planting RUF at a historically black college, uh, even for me, has been a humbling experience, and I'm learning to trust God in some really profound ways. Um, But we have our very first Bible study going on Wednesdays at noon. Um, So would you just pray uh, that God would send students to just to come and to be a part of of that. But one of the things that I'm really learning in this process is, as I said, just really trusting God and and to celebrate the small victories. Uh, And one of those times that really always stands out in my mind is the day I got my first parking pass to park on campus. Uh, And because... Uh, It literally took three months for me to convince the campus that it was necessary for me to be there every day. And it gave me a place to actually park. And so uh, I I finally got that opportunity to get that place, and I go into uh, the campus police office, and I'm standing in line with other students who are paying off tickets and and, and getting passes and stuff to park in places on campus. And I get up to the lady at the glass, and um, she said, can you remind me again? Can you tell me why, this, why you need to be on campus every day? What, what's going on? And I began to tell her my story about what RUF is and, and what it is that we do. And of course, it's me, so I'm throwing gospel grenades all through this conversation. And you, you know campus ministers, so we, we think every one-on-one is an opportunity for somebody's life to drastically change. And uh, so uh, we go through this conversation, and so I get to the end, and she says to me, so you mean to tell me, you a black Presbyterian minister coming in here with some skinny jeans, dreadlocks, and tattoos. (laughs) And she said, then, I must be Beyonce. So at that point, though, uh, I, I think she thought at, at least then she had me. Um, but I love Jesus and these students, so I told her she better put a ring on me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pray. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
you have set the glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes, to steal the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, which you have set in place, what is mine, man, that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you have care for him. And from the place where the sun rises to the place where the sun goes down, your name is worthy to be praised. And we thank you for your manifold blessings this day, and above all, we thank you for the sending of your son, Jesus. Now, God, we ask that you would be our teacher, that we may behold wondrous things from your word, that we might receive your word and plant it to save our souls, that we might be doers and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And I ask God that you would use me to preach your gospel faithfully with clarity and power, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be looking at uh, probably by far one of the weirdest passages of the scripture that I've ever seen uh, in 1 Samuel 28, verse 3 through 20. 1 Samuel 28, verse 3 through 20. And the scripture reads, it says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. And the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. And when Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went he and two men with him and they came to the woman by night and he said divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you and the woman said to him surely you know what Saul has done how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death but Saul swore to her by the Lord as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams, and therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? And the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, 
For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. And because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. And moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, the study of the life of David uh, begins with this ongoing contrast uh, between David and uh, this king who is currently reigning named Saul. Uh, Saul is called to be king in 1 Samuel 9, uh, where we'd like to think, hey, this brother is being called to be king because uh, he's a great military man or he's really wise or some great religious leader. Uh, but no, in verse 2 it says us that he's called to be king simply because he's just taller and finer than all the other brothers. <laughs> I mean, they picked this brother to be king like something off the bachelor. Uh, David, on the other hand, though, David, on the other hand, uh, when Samuel comes and meets David's father, uh, we see that his father doesn't even see his worth enough to include him as among one of his sons. But one of the things um, that whenever I prepare to teach a text, I, I like to make sure I ask really good questions about that text, right? And one of the questions that I ask in this particular instance is would David and Saul have ever considered themselves to be friends? And I think I found the answer to that, at least for me, a, a couple uh, passages over. In 1 Samuel uh, eighteen eleven. I think I found that answer. It says... Uh, And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. And I know you're probably answering, how in the world could that answer whether or not these brothers were friends? Uh, Because the way I see it is like this. Uh, We know that David loved music. He's probably jamming out to some Hezekiah Walker, Liz Rice or something. Uh, And and Saul throws that spear the first time. Uh, And that first time, I can assume, uh, that uh, Saul just kind of plays it off and says, hey man, I heard you were a great military leader. Uh, I just wanted to test your skills. Um, the only problem is that that spear came a second time. Uh, and I don't know about you, but when that spear came a second time, I know one thing to be true, that this brother is not my friend. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure I'd be like my grandmother used to say, uh, there'd be some smoke in the city. Saul, though, had this unique privilege of being called as the king of God's chosen people. Yet the life of Saul turns out to be more like a Shakespearean tragedy. Time after time, Saul chooses not to trust God. And his life is intended for us then to be a mirror for us. Saul's story is one of having gained the favor of God, yet in his rebellion he loses it. Know today then that our sin offends the righteous, true, and holy God. Yet in Jesus we have been given a substitute who offers us freely 
uh, the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. So look with me then at, at 1 Samuel 28 and verse 3, that very first one. It says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city, and Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The author here is setting the tone for what it is we're seeing in the text. I note, though, first, that both of the things that he's referencing here have already taken place. Uh, so Saul's death is not like um, Samuel's death. Is, is, it's not like something that has just happened. In fact, the text would suggest that Samuel has been gone for some time. And putting the mediums and the necromancers out of the land was probably something that, that Saul had done early in his reign. To rid the mediums and the necromancers from the land, though, is actually one of the few things that the scriptures mention that Saul actually did as he should have as the scripture had continually warned against them. It says, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and I will cut them off from among the people in Leviticus 20 and 6. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death and they shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them in Leviticus 20 and 7. So then look at verse 4. It says that the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem and Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. Real simple. This brother is so scared that when these Philistines show up, he goes and literally puts an entire mountain between them. Israel and the Philistines, they were perennial enemies. And, and the word, though, that the author uses here to describe the Philistines is a bit awkward because he uses the word immigrant. And I want to make sure that I, I, I'm careful in warning us that the use of the word immigrant is, is not the same context that we see taking place in America today. But the author is insisting that we know that the Philistines are coming to stay and to take over. Saul knew these brothers well in every instance. They somehow managed to call Saul to do something crazy. In 1 Samuel 13, in the story of Samuel, uh, at least, uh, Saul at least temporarily defe defeating uh, the Philistines, but Saul is impatient and in rebellion goes and offers a sacrifice after clearly knowing he should not have. In chapter 17, we see the story of David and Goliath. And as a result, he only grows more and more jealous, especially after hearing the people singing of great David's greater military accomplishments, of how Saul's thousands, but David's tens of thousands. So look then at verse 6. It says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So nothing at this point is going right for Saul. No prayer, none of the brothers that Saul normally hung out with could help him or tell him what to do. Know, though, that dreams, the Urim, the prophets, all of those things to this point are considered acceptable means of seeking God. The dreams we see as a form of revelation frequently in the scriptures. Jacob in Genesis 28 dreams of a ladder that reaches into the heavens. Joseph 
in Genesis 37, dreams of his future. Even in Matthew 1 and 20, God uses a dream to prepare Joseph for the birth of Jesus. The Urim, though, on the other hand, is a word that actually means light or to be luminous. In Exodus 28 and 30, it says that the Urim is described as a part of the priest's breastplate and is used as a reflection of judgment. It is believed to be one of two stones uh, that were used to seek answers from God. And so the prophets, though, the prophets were dudes like Samuel who were used and called by God to speak for God to the people. Yet, though all of these mediums of seeking answers from God existed, nothing came to Saul because he had ultimately been rejected by God. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, Samuel tells Saul, he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. That's already taken place. So Saul was forced facing wartime and, and had sent himself into silence from God. The prophet Isaiah, though, he didn't come until a bit later. Uh, he describes, though, this kind of silence from God. He says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you so that he does not hear for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity and your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness, he writes in Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 3. Samuel, though, is God's prophet, and Saul had this affinity for him because he knew that Samuel was a man who had lived in close communion with God. And now that he could not find any answers by any other means, he is growing more and more desperate that he knew without the favor of God that he and his army was going to fall. And I love the scripture's beauty here, especially in its literary beauty, um, because I want you to see here that the text uses what we call the past perfect tense. And if you can't tell, that means I am truly an old English teacher. Um, but this implies not only that God had decided not to speak to Saul, but God had prior to this already made up his mind that he was not going to. I'm reminded then of an old preacher who told me that one of the greatest costs of sin and perhaps the greatest is broken communion with the Lord. Which is why the psalmist in 66.18 says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And God, who is in his very nature a communicator, God who spoke the world into existence. In Genesis 3, it talks about Adam and Eve hearing the very voice of God in the garden, and Saul hears absolutely nothing. So Saul says to his servants in the text, he says, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. And at this point, it's like Saul is determined that he was going to hear from God, even if God himself didn't want to speak to him. He was going to do anything. Verse 8 through 11, it says, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. 
And the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her, by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. So Saul's disguise, uh, he's traveling by night. All these things are reflections of the reality that he knew that what he was doing was wrong. Saul is engaging the witch at Endor. She reminds him of his own work to remove the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Saul is turning from the very wisdom of God to seek counsel from among the wicked. So in verse 12, it says, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So this woman's cry as she sees Samuel coming to me implies that she was scared of what she could now see, which normally means she's probably as fake as Miss Cleo call me now and the Dion Warwick psychic network or something is happening that even she couldn't explain. No, this is not demonic or deceptive, but God's raising of his prophet. So in verse 13 and 14, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And maybe it's just me, but I think it's a bit crazy that Saul is the one in the midst of this trying to calm this lady down. If I'm coming to you to raise up a spirit for me, I'd at least expect you to be professional and know what you're doing, Miss Witcher Endor. This witch is not even good at her witchery. More importantly, though, notice it's Saul now who bows at the king at the feet of the prophet. In verse 15 through 19, it reads, it says, and then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. And because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. And moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. The interesting reality of this part of the text is that scholars disagree on its interpretation. Uh, there are those who would suggest that you can't bring 
uh, about this experience using demonic forces. Hey, you going to raise a spirit? That, that ain't going to work. Other scholars would suggest that, that which I'm more inclined to believe that God is even from the grave using Samuel to speak as his prophet to the king. I love Samuel's uh, response right from the beginning, though. He's asking, why are you disturbing me? And Saul just starts rambling. He says, these Philistines, they come and they're about to jack us up. I I've been going to my homeboys and they can't help me. The Urim ain't telling me nothing. I'm not dreaming about anything. And these prophets stuck on mute too. And I can imagine that in hearing Saul carry on uh, this way, Samuel knows that he simply needs to remind Saul of what God has said. Not only had he been rejected by God, the text says that God has become his enemy. James 4 and 4 says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Know, though, that you and I, yet for the shed blood of Christ, are two enemies of God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5 and 10, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And I know it's probably not the news that Saul was hoping for, but it's actually at this point the best news that he could have received. And Samuel tells him, tomorrow, you and your sons, y'all coming to be with me. See, the greatest application of this text is the reality that we will mess this thing up called life. Yeah, Jesus is better. <laughs> life is rough and messy and God is gracious and abounding in love and enduring in mercy. And he alone will bring to fruition the good work in you. So in verse 20, it reads, it says that the Saul at once fell um, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And this is the end for Saul. The last place that Saul could think to go to for hope was the place that he learned that he was utterly hopeless. God is silent and Saul is in despair. Saul, this tall, proud king, is left only with terror. There is no dream of a future hope. There's no new prophet coming to speak new life in the Saul situation. Nothing in the voices of the priest that can console him. There is nothing but silence when the only thing in the world that Saul wanted was to hear something. This is silence from God, the God who has always spoken, the God who can hear, who can deliver, is completely silent. 
The scriptures, though, describe for us at least one other time when this kind of silence took place. It was on a Friday, about 2,000 years ago, when Jesus, who is the very Son of God, was hanging on a cross in this place called God. He, at this point, he's, um, he's been beaten so much that um, you honestly could, could barely even recognize who he was. And, and they take these huge nails and they drive them through his hands and his feet to this old rugged cross that had been stained with the blood of God only knows how many men before him. This was the death for criminals, not the one man who ever lived who was completely sinless. Yet he had some friends like this young preacher at Winston-Salem State named Jonah that was so valuable to him that even with this, this crown of thorns on his head and this stupid sign that somebody thought was funny above his head, he bears the weight of the sins of humanity and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is crazy, too, because even in the middle of this immense suffering, God himself is still quoting scripture. See, Jesus, the very son of God in this instance, is forsaken and abandoned and deserted by his own father. Silence. Jesus became a curse for us. He died for us. But not only that, we know that after he cried out to the Father that he died for us. Yet he wasn't finished, though, because three days later, some of his friends came to the grave where he was buried. And, and he wasn't there and he wasn't there because grave robbers had took his body or because his followers wanted to just continue their religious beliefs. Jesus wasn't there because Jesus is alive. I was talking to my boss in RUF about this passage of scripture, uh, and, and he, he, he kind of blew my mind with it. He says, he says that Saul is a warning for us. Saul is a warning for us. And then he said something completely crazy. He said, he said, warnings in scripture are extensions of God's grace to us. So why is this crazy, tragic story of Saul here in the scriptures? Because God gives us grace. Upon grace. Upon grace. Upon grace. Grace.